Our sermon this morning is on Lamentations chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible from James River, you can find Lamentations chapter 5 on page 646. If not, if you're, uh, you can follow along with our liturgy that's posted online at jamesrivercommunitychurch.com. The entire chapter is printed in that liturgy uh, packet. This is our last sermon from the book of Lamentations, chapter 5. Uh, Lamentations has five chapters, each of which is its own kind of singular uh, poem. And we've, we've taken, uh, we've, we've looked at each of those five poems, each of those five chapters during the course of uh, a sermon. Uh, the entire book was written by a poet, uh, maybe Jeremiah, probably Jeremiah. A lot of scholars think Jeremiah, but but maybe someone else. We're not entirely uh, sure. We do know that it was written in the aftermath of the fall of the city of Jerusalem at the hands of uh, the armies of Babylon under the, the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, this ruthless uh, you know, military invasion. So this poet sees this devastation uh, sees this brutality, sees this this violence. He witnesses these terrible atrocities that are committed against the people that he that he loves, against his friends and his family. And he he sits down and starts to write, uh, starts to write poetry, starts to to vent onto paper uh, everything that he is feeling. Right, how he is emotionally processing all of these tragic national uh, events and he's he's hurting and he's crying and he's mourning and he is lamenting and uh interestingly the first four chapters of lamentations uh are all uh acrostic poems meaning that they are they're poems that are specifically structured where the first letter of each line corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each, each of them have 22 verses or 22 sections of, of verses. And uh, each of those uh, verses or sections of verses begin with the next corresponding letter of the Hebrew. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 sections. And they kind of just go from start to, to finish. It's almost as if, it's almost as if the, the poet is intentionally using the structure of these poems uh, to communicate, almost, almost to communicate, he's using a structure of order and, and, and stru one that's very clean and neat and makes sense and it's logical and there's a flow. That's what the structure is, but the words that he's saying, what he's communicating in these poems is one of confusion and, and chaos and just a total mess and, and just, you know, I'm upset and I'm struggling and I'm hurting. The, the poet is intentionally setting up this cognitive dissonance. Uh, between the words that he's writing and the structure and the form of the poem that he's writing. He's using a logical, clear, well-thought-out structure to communicate distress and fear and, and anxiety and frustration and, and just total chaos and, and disorder. It's almost it's as, if, it's as if he's trying to draw the reader's attention to it, just to emphasize even more. Uh, the terrible things that he's writing about and the urgency that he feels and the intense anger and emotional pain that he is uh, experiencing. Well, that's the first four chapters of Lamentations. By the time we get to Lamentations chapter 5 today, uh, it's the only chapter in the book that is not an acrostic. In fact, there's no structure or order to it at, at all. If you look at the other poems, one through four, you'll see a lot of uh, clean and neat and orderly and, and um, repeated and, and predictable line breaks, right? Very specific, like this couple of verses and then
and then a line break, and then this couple, and then a, then a line break. But if you look at chapter five, no such thing. It's just just twenty two verses, kind of scatter shot, just kind of thrown all together. There's no visual cues that tell the reader uh, when to stop and take a breath. It's almost like uh, the the poet has just exploded uh, into just this this venting of what he's feeling. There's no more structure, no more order, no more acrostic. It's frankly, it's just a mess. It's just a mess of everything that didn't make it into Lamentations 1 through 4 just gets kind of thrown onto the canvas here in Lamentations chapter 5. He's upset. Uh, he's upset that God would let this happen. He's upset that things have gotten as bad as they have gotten. He's upset about the abuse that he's witnessing. And he's just really sad. He's deeply sad about what he is is witnessing. And he's trying. He's he's trying with everything in him to manufacture uh, this trust in God in the midst of all of this. And he's having a tough time. He's having a difficult time forcing himself to trust God and forcing himself to believe in in God. And it kind of ends in this kind of weird open-ended question where he doesn't know if he actually trusts God or not. And the reader is almost left kind of hanging in the in the wind with a note of uncertainty, which is what happens when tragedy and pain and suffering overwhelm us in this life. It's not always neat. It's not always tidy. There's not always a perfect, uh, clear ending. We don't always know exactly how we feel. Sometimes there are more questions than there are answers. And that's kind of how Lamentations, uh, you know, leaves off in Lamentations chapter, chapter five. So let's go ahead and read through the entirety of Lamentations five. And then just think together for a few minutes about what it means for us and what it is calling us to, how it is calling us to respond. It begins in verse 1. It says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water that we drink and the wood that we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks and we are weary and given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and they are no more and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. Old men have left the city gate. Young men have left their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Lord, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly 
rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this, uh, this chapter is heavy. This whole book is, is heavy, and we read it, and we are reminded of how hard life can be, and we're reminded of how real and, and just how visceral suffering is in our lives. We read a chapter like this, and it causes us to lament and to, to mourn over, you know, over lives that are lost from the coronavirus, over lives that are lost from violence and murder, uh, lives that are lost from cancer or from natural disasters. Like we, we lament over the suffering that we see in the world around us. And yet, Lord, we resolve with every bit of strength that we have in us. We resolve to trust you in the midst of this suffering. We pray that you would teach us that you would help us and that you would grow us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. The poet begins, Remember, O Lord, remember what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Right? God, remember us. Look, look, the implication, of course, is that it seems like maybe God has forgotten us or is forgetting us. God, remember us. It, it feels like you're distracted. It feels like you're busy with someone else. It feels like, like we are not a priority, but the reality is we are hurting. We are suffering. We need you. God, if you, if you cared about us like, like I thought that you did, then you would be here and you would help. You, you would leverage your omnipotence and your sovereign authority on our behalf so that we could experience relief and so that we could experience mercy. So God, please remember us. Please see our disgrace, see our terrible circumstances, and remember us in the midst of them. And what are those circumstances that we're referring to? Verses 2 and following. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes have been turned over to foreigners. Right? We, we've lost Jerusalem. We've lost the centerpiece of our entire nation, which, which would be bad enough if we were talking just about uh, a financial uh, or a, a geographical happening, right? This, this, we're living in this beautiful city that's been occupied by a terrorist army. That's bad enough, but this runs deeper because it goes to the very core of God's promises to his, his people, right? So to fully understand uh, the importance, the, the, the weight of the city of Jerusalem and, and how it was the inheritance of God's people. You have to retrace the story of the Bible from all the way back to, to Genesis, right? God creates the world. God creates humanity and puts them in the world. God tasks humanity with ruling over the world in God's stead. Right? To, 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 I, Adam, Eve, I want you to be my vice regents. I want you to rule over the world in my place. You have dominion over virtually every single thing in the world, save one thing. Save uh, this tree right here in the middle of the garden. You don't have authority over that. Do not eat from it. Your rule and your reign exists over all everything else because you were created in my image to rule and reign, but your rule and your reign does not uh, extend over this one tree because because you while you were created in my image, 
and you therefore do have glory and dignity and honor and authority, you are not me. You are not God. I am God. I am the creator. I am sovereign over everything. You are the creature. You were created. You have an authority that is delegated and one that, that uh, you only have authority over what I, God, say that you have authority over. And so from the very beginning of the Bible, in the first scene in the garden, there's, there's beauty and glory and honor and authority. But there's also the, the reality that, that man is not sovereign. Man answers to someone else. Man answers to God. Our authority is an authority that is delegated from God. And Adam promptly rebels against God's sovereign rule and authority. He promptly attempts to establish himself as the king. Adam basically says, God, I am not interested in ruling over 99.99999% of your creation like you have told me that I can. No, I want to rule over that tiny little fraction of your creation that you have told me that I cannot. If I rule over everything else in creation like you told me, then I'm just I'm just ruling like you have allowed me to. But if I can rule over that one tree, then then I I'm in the then I rule over God and I am the king. My authority will no longer be delegated from someone higher than me. My authority will be something that's mine that I took with my own power and I won't have to answer to anyone. So God creates the world, God creates humanity, humanity rebels against God, God kicks humanity out of the garden, the world falls into disarray, the world just continues to descend into chaos and sin, and, and it, it's uh, so bad that God has to destroy it with a flood. Uh, later, uh, humanity bands together and builds this tower to heaven in an attempt to dethrone God and assert themselves over him. God has to scatter them all over the face of the world, and when he does, he picks one man and he says everyone has failed and I'm going to scatter them but I'm going to pick one person one man Abraham and Abraham you are you're my guy right you are I picked you I'm going to bless you I'm going to save you I'm going to save the world through you and through your people you are going to be the patriarch of a nation and the Messiah the Savior is going to come from that nation and eventually, uh, Abraham's descendants uh, are formed into a nation. They make their way into Egypt because of this uh, terrible famine. And they're trying to find food. And when they do, Pharaoh uh, of Egypt promptly enslaves them to keep them under his thumb. And they're there as slaves in Egypt for generations until Moses leads them out uh, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the promised land. God tells Joshua, Moses' successor, that I want you to lead my people into the promised land. He's, he's telling Joshua, he's saying, remember the promises that I gave to Abraham, right? About the nation, about the, the blessing, about the Savior. This is it. This is the place. This is the promised land right here. The land that I promised Abraham that's going to uh, fulfill the promise that I made to Adam to reverse the curse and to make the world back how I wanted to make it. This is it. This is your inheritance. So go and enjoy it. And they do. God's people go and they enjoy the promised land of Israel, their inheritance. They enjoy Jerusalem, the crown jewel of Israel, right? With the palace and the temple and it's beautiful and it's glorious. Which is why it is so utterly devastating 
when it is destroyed. It's not just a city. It's not just a beautiful, great, glorious city. It's a city that is representative of God's promise to Adam and, and Noah and Abraham and Moses and all of the patriarchs. It, it's a city that is representative of God's promise to reverse the curse. God's promise to save his people. God's promise to undo all of the effects of sin in the world. God's promise to make all of the bad things in this world become untrue. Right? God was going to do it through someone from Israel. And Jerusalem was representative of Israel. So Jerusalem was the, the first step in God turning this fallen, broken world back into the perfect, glorious Garden of Eden. And so when that city that's representative of that massive promise, that sweeping promise, when that city is destroyed, all of those promises of God to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, they're, all those promises are called into question. Jerusalem, the crown jewel, this, this city that God loved, right? It's been destroyed. It seems like God's promises are being broken, that they're not going to come about. Our inheritance has been given over to foreigners that have come to invade us. God, why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you come and save us? Why didn't you come and help us? God, are, you, are your promises? Promises not to be trusted, right? Your promise to save and heal this world. Was that just a, are, are you not going to come through on that promise? It's a, it's a big deal. It's a cause for stress. It's a cause for concern. And not only that, but, but people are dying. Verse three, right? We have become orphans fatherless our mothers are like widows right these babylonian soldiers are marching in they're systematically slaughtering people like like nazis during the holocaust just lining people up and then killing them right man after man after man are being killed and deported off into slavery husband after husband after husband father after father after father leaving behind totally and completely defenseless widows and orphans with no possessions and no homes and no earning power and no ability to take care of themselves, right? Just murdering men whose responsibility it was to provide and protect and then abandoning women and children who are now totally vulnerable and totally without resources, Verse 4, we must pay for the water we drink. The wood that we get must be bought. These are, these are basic necessities, right? Essential staples that everyone needed, right? And for the most part, uh, they, were, they were generally thought of as free for the taking, right? Like you and I would think of air, right? It's, it's not something you buy. It's just something you just have. It's, it's all around you. You can have all of it that you want. There's no scarcity of it, right? If we need more wood, uh, just send dad out to get wood and we'll have it to make fire and to keep warm and to cook. If we need more water, send dad out to get water so that we can drink. And this is just a, a basic necessity of life. It's no such thing as paying for it. It just is all around us. Imagine, imagine ISIS taking over America, right? Blowing up all the government buildings, murdering all of the government officials, and then implementing a policy where you have to pay for the oxygen that you breathe, right? And they, we're going to estimate all of the air that we think a person is going to breathe, and then we're going to send you a bill for it, 
right? It's our air. We took over this country. We own it. It's ours. It's our air. And we're not going to give it to you for free anymore. We're going to set the price for air. And if you have a problem with it, if you have a problem with paying your oxygen tax, then we'll arrest you and we'll lock you in an airtight chamber and feel free to live as long as you like in there with no oxygen. See how long you last without oxygen. You either pay for oxygen or we will deprive you of oxygen and see. I mean, oxygen is a, a basic human right. It's a it's it's basic human dignity to be able to breathe, and that's kind of how they understood wood and water. And they're saying we've we've you know gone so low that we have to pay money for these basic human rights and human uh, you know necessities. Verse five: Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary and given no rest. Right? They're doing it on purpose. They're chasing us down. They're they're being intentional to not let anyone get away. They're they're killing us for sport, and we're having to run away from them. And we're hiding, and and we're exhausted. Right? We're we're having to stay up all night long, keeping watch for when these enemies are going to come. If we see them, then we have to wake everyone up in the middle of the night and, and run, get, gather our stuff, and run away. In fact, this is how bad that it's gotten, you see in verse 6. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria just so that we could get enough bread. Right? We're reeling in pain, we're starving, we're at death's door, and it appears that God is not coming to help us. And this is how bad it's gotten. This is what it has come to. We've actually had to reach out uh, to neighboring countries to try to form alliances. But, but these aren't just any countries, right? Uh, you recognize the names, Egypt and Assyria. These, these are the exact two countries that have in Israel's history and in Israel's past oppressed them and enslaved them. Uh, Assyria was the country who about 150 years prior to the Babylon, uh, came in and attacked and besieged the nation of Israel and deported all kinds of people all over the, the place. And Egypt, if you go several centuries before that, Egypt was the country that originally enslaved the nation of Israel when they fled there uh, to escape starvation and, and famine. It's, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like the, the poet specifically names these two countries that Israel had to reach out to for help. To, to just uh, put into perspective how far things have, have digressed. It's gotten so bad that we are reaching out to our two arch nemeses for help, right? There's a new bully in town that's picking on us, and we have nowhere to turn. We have no friends. In fact, the only thing we can do is go to the old bully, the, the people that have been bullying us for years. We're going to go to those bullies and ask them to help us with the new bully, right? We have no friends. The closest thing we have to a friend is our worst enemy from just before. This enemy is so bad, and everyone else has abandoned us so far that we have only one place to turn, and that is to who was previously our worst enemy, but is now our second worst enemy, right? We're getting dominated, we're getting slaughtered, we're getting destroyed, and there's no one to help us. In verse 7, here's the reason why. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. So this, this terrible, intense, awful suffering that we're experiencing, it all happened because of our sin. It happened because of the sins of our 
fathers, right? Our fathers lived long ago. They sinned against God. They worshiped other gods instead of the God of heaven. They disobeyed the laws of God. They refused to love their neighbors as themselves. They sought to put themselves on the throne and live their own life on their own terms. And then they died and God was upset with them. And now we are experiencing the consequences of their sin. Right? The poet is, he's doing an autopsy on on human suffering, on the suffering that he's experiencing. He's doing an autopsy on, uh, he's reverse engineering the, the experiences that he, that is happening all around him, right? Uh, verses one through five show us one cause of human suffering, and it is persecution from others, right? Right? We're sinned against by sinful, wicked people, suffering, uh, which results from violent, which results in vile, or I'm sorry, suffering that results from violence and slavery and harassment and uh, oppression, right? So, so verses one through five kind of describe this, this kind of suffering that don't necessarily mean that you did something wrong. In fact, it often comes as a result of doing something right. People resent you and they persecute you for doing something right. But here in verse seven is another kind of suffering altogether. It's the, it's the kind of suffering that is the appropriate consequence of our own sin, right? So, so I do something wrong, I do something bad, and then I suffer the consequences for it. It's important to realize that that, that kind of economy, that kind of reality, that, that when we suffer, or when we sin, we then suffer consequences for our sin, does not necessarily contradict the truth of, of the gospel, Right? The gospel says that, uh, that you sin against God. We sin against God. And when we do, we, we evoke the wrath of God. We're separated from God. We're headed from hell. But then Jesus comes to rescue us and to save us. And he lives a perfect life. And he dies the death that we deserve. And he takes the wrath of God for us. The punishment that we would have spent an eternity paying in hell. Jesus takes that on the cross. And the result is that if we trust in Jesus, we can be saved. We can be reconciled to God. There's no punishment for sin left for us because Jesus took it for us. That's true. That's the gospel. But just because Jesus took the wrath of God and took the punishment that we deserved because of our sin doesn't mean that there aren't still any real or tangible consequences for sin in this life. There still are. Right? You sin against your spouse, you lose your temper, you raise your voice, you say hurtful things. But if you repent and trust in Jesus... You'll be forgiven. Absolutely. Right? Uh, you'll, you'll go to heaven and not hell. Right? No, that's not some sort of unforgivable sin. But you can't take back what you said. And you can't unsay the words that you said. Your spouse might still be hurt. Right? They might have lost trust in you or lost respect for you. And you have to work to get it back. There are consequences. Right? If you, if you break the law and drive over the speed limit... That's a sin. Romans 13 says, obey the government. If you break the law of the government, that's a sin. That's wrong. If you trust Christ, you'll be forgiven. You'll go to heaven instead of hell. But you still have to pay your speeding ticket. Because there are still consequences for sin in this, in this life. And then in Romans 5, 7 uh, goes as far as to say, we don't only pay for the 
uh, for our own sin. We don't only uh, experience consequences for our own sin, but the consequences from sin actually go down through generations, through our family tree, right? Our fathers were the ones who sinned. They're dead and gone, and we're experiencing the consequences of their sins. So when you, when you sin, you're not merely evoking the wrath of God that will send you to hell if you don't trust in Christ. You are, but you're not, you're not merely doing that. Right? When you sin, you're not only bringing consequences down on yourself here in this life. You are, but you're not merely doing that. When you sin, you're also uh, bringing consequences on, you know, far beyond yourself onto people that you love and care about. Most notably, your children and, and their children, right? If you, if you get drunk and drive a car and get into a car accident and hurt someone, the consequences don't just stop with you, right? With your guilty conscience or with your legal trouble or with your being inconvenienced, right? The consequences extend to the people that you hurt, right? When you, uh, if you're a father with children, you break the law and you go to jail, the consequences don't just stop with you and your, uh, you know, unpleasant experience in jail. It also goes to your wife who now has no husband. It goes to your kids who lost a father, right? This is why this is why alcoholism tends to run in families. This is why children who are victims of domestic violence are more likely to be involved in domestic violence later in life because kids learn behaviors from their parents and the consequences of sin works its way out through generation after generation after generation. Which is why parenthood is such a high calling, right? This is right. all the more reason why being a mom or being a dad is such a vital, important ministry and vocation and calling. Because if you do it well, it can have a ripple effect that touches dozens or even hundreds of lives long after you're dead and gone. Or if you punt on it, if you abandon your care, if you do it poorly, it can have a negative ripple effect that goes on for generations that can have, that can damage dozens or hundreds of lives long after you are dead and gone. Verse 8, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We were, previously we were ruled by kings with lavish purple robes and we had it all, right? And, and now, now we're ruled over by, by slaves, right? We've descended from the top to the very bottom. We're scoffed and despised by everyone. Verse 9, we get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness, Right? Again, we can't get our hands on basic necessities for life. We need bread. If we don't get it, we'll starve to death. But when we go try to get it, our lives are put at risk because of the enemies that are trying to kill us. What was once readily available is now nowhere to be found. Verse 10, our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Our skin is drying up like, like a raisin in the, in the sun. And then in verses 11 through 14, uh, the, the author walks through various uh, demographic segments showing how this terrible suffering has permeated throughout all of society. Right? Verse 11, women 
are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah, right? The men who are supposed to be protecting and providing for these women are gone. They're dead. And so now the women are being exploited and being objectified and being dehumanized and being treated as property by drunken soldiers committing terrible uh, offenses against them. Uh, Adult women and little girls being treated like this. Verse 12, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. This is wealthy people, affluent people, wise people, powerful people, influential people. Right? It's, not, it's not as if the suffering is relegated to the peasant class, to people who could afford to pay off, or people who couldn't afford to pay off people that were coming after them. It went all the way up to the top. Head government officials, high-ranking executives, the who's who of Jerusalem. They're all being captured and hauled off. Being hung up by their hands is probably a reference to execution. Probably a very painful, slow execution. Uh, likely a, a precursor to, to crucifixion itself. Verse 13, young men are compelled to grind at the mill. This is child slavery. Boys are staggering under loads of wood. Old men have left the gate. The young men have left their, their music. We've got forced manual labor, terrible, dangerous conditions. Old people, young people, rich people, poor people, males, females, every single person in the entire society has been affected by these terrible circumstances. If you, if you were in Jerusalem or if you were near Jerusalem or if you were in any way associated with Jerusalem, you were a victim of this terrible, awful siege. In verse 15, the result of this terrible sin and suffering, this terrible siege, is deep, deep sadness and lament. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick and our eyes have grown dim. Right, the, the big theme of the book of Lamentations is that when you are in the midst of suffering, it is appropriate to mourn. It is appropriate to be sad. It's appropriate to lament. It's appropriate to cry. It's appropriate to, to grieve. Right, The entire book of Lamentations is pushing back against this human tendency that we have to deny suffering and pretend like it's not there. I'm doing fine. I don't need your help. I don't need your pity. I don't need your charity. Everything's good. Everything's great. Look how good my life is. Because we've all, we've all collectively convinced ourselves that, uh, that if you're suffering, if there's, something, if there's something wrong in your life, then there must be something wrong with you. If you're suffering, then you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You did something wrong. You should be embarrassed. So you had better not admit it. And Lamentation says, suffering is real. Suffering is a part of life. Suffering is, is a part of life because of the world that we live that has been devastated by human sin. It's real. Don't deny it. Don't pretend like it's not there. Acknowledge it and stare it in the face. And then when you do, lament. Be sad. 
Permit your soul to be sad because of sin and suffering, right? Be happy about the things that should make you happy, like God's grace and God's provision and the, the person and work of Jesus. And then be sad about the things that should make you sad, like sin and suffering and persecution. Don't deny them. Don't pretend like they don't exist. Don't push them out of sight and out of mind. Acknowledge them and, and be intentional to keep them in your field of vision so that you can see them and mourn them and grieve over them and be sad about them that's okay to do in fact it's not just okay it's necessary you must do it in order to be spiritually and emotionally healthy you must have space to lament and grieve and mourn in this life if you lament it doesn't mean that you're in the wrong if you lament it, it lament it doesn't mean that you're wrong it doesn't mean that you're eeyore who's just bumming everyone out it doesn't mean that you need to have more faith and that you need to get into a positive state of mind, and that you need to be victorious, and that you need to be an overcomer, like you'll hear on televangelists, right? If, if, you're, if you're lamenting, it just means that you're a Christian. It means that you have an appropriate, Holy Spirit-filled response to the sin and suffering that is all around you. The Holy Spirit grieves when he sees sin and suffering. And Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit should grieve when they see sin and suffering. Lament is absolutely appropriate, and it is a vital part of the Christian life. So verses 1 through 14 give us our first point, that suffering is real. It's real, it's terrible, it results from persecution, it results from the consequences of sin, it's real, so don't deny it. Verses 15 through 17 give us our second point, that when you see sin and suffering, it's appropriate to mourn and lament. It's not appropriate to deny it. It's not appropriate to pretend like it's not there. It's not appropriate to tell a person who's suffering to just cheer up and just put on a happy face. When you see sin and suffering, it's appropriate to mourn and lament and grieve. And then finally, verses 19 through 22. Tell us that when we see suffering and while we are lamenting in the midst of suffering, trust God while you're there. Look to God, acknowledge the sovereignty of God, and fight with every ounce of strength and grit that you have within you. Fight to trust God and hold fast to God. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. God, this is what I know is true. Everything I said in the first four chapters is still true. Everything that I said in the first 18 verses of this chapter is still true. I still feel like I don't know where you are. I still feel like you've forgotten me. I still can't conceive of how you could let something like this happen. I'm seriously wondering if you exist. I'm seriously wondering if you love me. I'm struggling with real and significant doubt. And yet, Lord, I am fighting. I am resolving to trust you. I'm going to fight to believe. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're on the throne. I know that you reign forever. I know that nothing exists outside of your perfect sovereign will. I know that you're the king. I know that you're good. I know that your kingdom is good. And I'm going to believe that. I'm going to trust that. Or, or frankly, I'm going to die trying. I'm going to trust you or I'm going to die trying. This is not an exaggeration. That he's, that he's making, because the very next verse points to the, the, the circumstances that, that make him struggle to, to do that, right? Verse 20, why, O Lord, do you forget us 
forever. Why do you forsake us for so many days? It seems like we're forgotten. It seems like we've been forsaken. I know in my head that verse 19 is true, that you reign forever. But I feel with my circumstances, like verse 20 is true. Like you, is true. Like you've forgotten me. Like you have forsaken me. I can't reconcile how you can be the king reigning forever and I can still be experiencing what I am in this life. And so I'm praying from the bottom of my heart. I'm mustering every ounce of spiritual energy I have to pray this prayer in verse 21. Lord God, restore us that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Please come here to us. Please fix this thing. Please judge our enemies. Please make things how they used to be. Please make things how they should be. Please help us and please be gracious to us. Verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us, unless you remain exceedingly angry with us. And that's it. The book just ends. That's the end of the whole book. God, we need you to renew us. We need you to restore us. We're asking you to, but to be perfectly honest, God, I'm not sure if you're going to. I'm not sure if you've rejected us forever or not. I'm not sure if you remain exceedingly angry with us or not. To be honest, God, I don't really know what to believe anymore. I know what the Bible teaches. I know what I'm trying with everything in me to believe and to trust, but I also know what I'm experiencing. And I know that, that having faith in you is the hardest and most difficult thing in the world right now. I, I don't have all the answers. In fact, to be, to be perfectly honest, my faith is shaky and, and wavering and I'm doubting, right? I don't have some perfect, happy, fairy tale ending to this story, right? Belief is really hard. And frankly, I'm left just hoping beyond all hope that you haven't rejected me and that you have not, uh, you know, forgotten about me entirely. I'm struggling with doubt. I want to believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. And that's where the book of Lamentations leaves us. Suffering is real. Lament it and mourn it. Don't deny it. Give yourself time and space to be sad. But then in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sin, fight hard to trust in God. Fight hard to believe the gospel. Fight to have joy in God. Fight to delight in God. Fight doggedly. Fight tenaciously. Even when you feel like you don't have any more energy. Even when you feel like you've been forgotten. You feel like you've been forsaken. You feel like God is remaining angry at you and he's rejecting you forever. Even in the midst of that fight. Never give up. Even when you want to, never give up. Even when you feel like you'd be totally justified in giving up, never give up. Even when your circumstances lead you to believe that giving up is the only option, never give up. Fight to trust in God. Suffer, suffer well, lament and mourn, and then fight to trust in God. That's, that's the book of Lamentations. Trust God or die trying. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray as a people that you would help us 
to suffer well. We pray that you would help us to be a people who suffer well. We pray that you would help us to acknowledge the reality of sin and suffering all around us. We pray that we would resist the temptation to look at this life through rose-colored glasses and deny the hard things that are all around us in life and to, to sweep them under the rug. God, we want to be a people who are fully aware of sin and suffering and who are moved by it and who mourn over it and who lament over it. And then, Lord Jesus, we want to be a people who trust you in the midst of sin and suffering. God, please give us the faith to trust in you and to hold fast to you, even in the midst of sin and suffering. Please help us to stay the course and to run the race and to finish the fight together as a church, as your people. Please give us grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.